0: Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats in an ongoing cyber war. It's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson.
1: Welcome to the show, Cybersecurity America, Joshua Nicholson, your host here. Really glad to be speaking with you today, especially on this topic, threat detection management. Managing detection and response is difficult, but not as difficult as fusing that with log analysis for anomaly detection. Now how this new hybrid approach works and what's the methodology behind it is what we're going to discuss today. Defense in depth approach mandates, we analyze threats from these multiple dimensions, We're going to dive into what is working, what needs to change, as we take our defense strategy to the next level of maturity. We're also going to be talking about threat actors using IoT devices to evade detection inside your network and be able to pivot around. But before we do that, we're going to have our threat intelligence briefing over from Aaron Beerling via our Deep Seas Partnership. Aaron?
2: Hey, Josh. Thanks. For the threat intelligence report this week, one of the big main concerns that we're still seeing is a lot of the DDoS activity that's coming from KillNet. Specifically, we have a lot of our uh, healthcare clients that are still very concerned over a lot of this DDoS activity, but we're also seeing it happen um, elsewhere to include like the defense industrial base and other clients that we have affiliated with either military operations, global operations, or non-governmental organizations. And this level of hacktivism is something that we had anticipated, obviously moving into the spring months and seeing more uh, move up of what's going on between Russia and Ukraine. A lot of discussions, obviously, politically of that situation. It's not uncommon for us to see more of this cyber activity pick up. And what we discussed last week with wiper malware that's still coming out, it's not surprising to see this kind of hacktivism come out. But seeing a lot of reporting out on it, clients concerned about these DDoS lists and whether or not the thousands upon thousands of IPs That are being reported as belonging to this kill net operation whether do you block it can you block it how do we get the kind of threat intelligence information that would protect us against something like ddos activity so it's a very difficult situation because what we are seeing is a very sophisticated threat actor that knows exactly what kind of concerns a lot of our c-suite and a lot of our directors are going to have and then they know exactly how to get around it and how to inundate our threat intelligence groups or our platforms or what have you with just so much information that we're not even sure how to parse through the details before they've already changed their infrastructure. So that's going to be the larger focus, I think, for quite a few weeks now is how do you get in front of hacktivism like this when these threat actors want to be able to just basically blast everything that they can. They know that the Russian government doesn't care what they do. They know as long as they're in support of the means of the Russian government, they'll have ostensibly protection from that kind of activity, that it's going to become a very difficult landscape when fighting starts getting more aggressive in Ukraine and when we start seeing far more pressure being applied by the United States with a lot of the equipment that we know is going to be sent over there. There's just a rich landscape for a lot of threat activity coming out of Russia, and they're getting very smart in the years since the invasion into ukraine they understand how we react they understand what our concerns are they're able to read the media that we're putting out and so it's going to be a very interesting spring i suspect when it comes to russian activity but additionally from an intelligence perspective a very good way for us to get an idea and a focal point on that type of russian activity and see how they develop what they what they grow into and see some of those new ttps that come out if there's no questions on that I would say the next one is it's Patch Tuesday, which is the favorite of every attack surface reduction and every threat intelligence guy. Love Tuesday. Primarily, nothing nothing that concerning coming out of Patch Tuesday. We saw a zero day in, in Apple products, which is something, of course, that we want to track. But additionally, we did see some, we saw a lot of stuff come out of Microsoft as is normal. The ones that concern us were some low, they were rated as high in the sevens and eights as far as CVS scores. But there are RCE vulnerabilities but we're not seeing them actively exploited. And that's typically where we sit with our collaboration with our ASR team over at Deep Seas is understanding the difference between a high rating is of course something we want to be concerned about, but what's the most concerning? Is it actively exploited? Are we, is there an active POC for it? And that's how we help our clients prioritize whether or not they need to start up any sort of additional action and how they would prioritize a lot of those vulnerabilities. And so that's what we've been working on for the last couple of days, is taking a look at especially a lot of the Microsoft vulnerabilities that came out and seeing where they sit. And so some of the remote code execution vulnerabilities, those are the ones I'd be concerned about. In tracking to see whether or not there's a an active exploitation coming out, whether it's in the wild, and if there's a POC, currently there's not. As far as some of the other zero days that are out there that are being actively exploited, there were three specifically, which I'll have to give you for your show notes because I don't have them off the top of my head. Those those take a little bit more than that RCE capability, but that's the kind of way that I suggest a lot of people should approach when they look at Patch Tuesday from that CTI perspective, and like what we briefed a couple weeks ago. we saw that VMware ESXi vulnerability. It was like a couple years old, still very popular, still able to have a full ransomware campaign. So those are the kinds of things that we have to look at. And log4j, still one of the top top vulnerabilities that we see leveraged all the time and exploited. if, If you're going to do good intelligence, you want to absorb good intelligence, it does actually start at what is vulnerable, basically what's going to be a hole in your wall and how to protect it. But those are the two main points that I had for today.
1: Awesome. I appreciate that, Aaron. It does seem that there may be some tie-in from the last week's episode and how things are developing this year. I really appreciate that. Thank you.
2: No problem. Thank you, gentlemen. All right. My
1: first guest here, I have a real exciting time today. I happen to be on site in San Diego, California here with Joel Holland. Joel is the chief technology officer here at Deep Seas. Ten years experiences as the chief technology officer. He's also did 12 years as a Chief Security Officer, 10 years as VP Development and Product. But more importantly, one of the interesting things is you're a nuclear engineer, and you're in the U.S. Navy, submarine, and intelligence. Welcome to the show, Joel. It's great to have you. Thank you, Josh. Glad to be here. Awesome. What part of your bio did I miss? What else have you been focused on? And no, I
3: think the reality is the reason why I talk about technology, security, and development is it's really the product as a whole and how you how you find something that can actually help you as a. If you're trying to figure out what security products to put in place, what's going to help you? The 12 years as a CISO, I was on the other side of the fence from what we're doing here in, in deep seas, and trying to find the right products to put in place. Mm-hmm. Which one worked? Which one didn't work? That was a lot of those 12, 12 years was realizing where security products were. Where they were good where they were bad and a lot's happened in the last 10 years so obviously there's a lot of different options nowadays but being on both sides of the fence has really given me a better view into what we're trying to do to help protect our clients
1: yeah it makes sense so yep. you're building products based on the outcomes that you learn that when you're on the customer side of that right when you absolutely in industry you realize that and so that's what you infuse into how do you develop technology and products today
3: absolutely yeah it's okay. a great way to put it yep
1: and so what has been the guiding philosophy when you approach product development in the cybersecurity space some people ease of use or it's deep analytics or what is the dimension that you focus on when it comes to analytics
3: so my background is very much data related so that's always the way my mind goes is how do i get enough data to answer the problem in the CISO world we had all these tools we had actually three sims at one time all doing the same you doing the same thing and we hired a particular consultant that came in and just walked around everything and understanding how easy it is to get around some of these things, it's trying to build um, capabilities that help us find the things that we know to look for. And that's really the challenging part of security is there, there's a lot of things that can help us find the things that that are that we know to look for and we know to protect against. And those are the things that have really become significantly better over the past 10, 15 years. There's some really great products out there, but there's still a big gap in the unknown side of things. And how do you find things that you didn't even know to look for? That's where I focused a lot of uh, the analytics side of the business and why we spent so much time with R&D and things like that around our data analytics platform that now I'm excited. Now we're deep seas and we're going to go take this thing to to the oceans for lack of a better term, do something with it, right? So that's where, that's the direction that we've been taking the analytics side of this product.
1: That's great. And I think from the combination of the capabilities with The Booz Allen spin out the combination SOD. We have the platform for managed detection and response and then the platform for analytics and the ability to leverage both of them in a a seamless capability for our customers to consume. It's exciting. Yeah,
3: exciting is the right word. That's basically what I was going to use when we started talking about putting these two together. Like I said, the endpoint products and the MDR products are very good. last 10, 15 years, they've spent a, a ton of really perfecting that craft and they're very good at doing that piece. And that was something that we weren't very good at on the previous security on demand side. And then the other side of the house is what we targeted was really finding the things that you weren't gonna find with these purpose-built products. And so putting the two together really gives us, you're calling it one plus one equals three. And I think it's even more than that, but that's the exciting part of what, what we're doing here. Yeah.
1: So walk me past this. Some of the things that we talked about, data analytics and scaling threat detection that, you really can't scale unless you do have greater context of the organization and events. Yeah. You have a dimension of activity that's recorded in logs or activity logs at that side, many different points, but it doesn't give a holistic picture. Like an EDR does not look at logs all the time. Of right? course, yeah. So there's a different dimension. So what are your kind of thoughts on data analytics and scaling and how's best to do that when you look at the problem?
3: And I think that's really the reason why it is such a problem in the security space is trying to scale any amount of data, you can go look, the amount of data is just getting bigger every day, right? So it's not like it's something that's gonna go away. And so the ability to really focus on certain data, like what endpoint and and different vendors are doing, they have their window they can look in, right? And they can make that box a box, where on the data analytics side, you have to take as much as you can and, but then you have a scalability problem is we've all dealt with the spokes of the world and you know how long it takes to run a query. Right. And to try and do as much analytics as you need to find something that's anomalous within your environment, you have to be able to do it at scale and you have to take as much data as you possibly can because you don't know what data is actually gonna be the piece you need to find the bad guy, right? Yeah. The bad guys have got very good at knowing how good these MDR tools are and how do I find ways around them That's really where I've seen a lot of the more sophisticated attacks over this past year has really been in in ways that, okay, I know I'm gonna get caught if I land on here. I'm gonna, I've even seen some code, some malware that actually has a lot of of the checks in there that says, if I see Carbon Black, CrowdStrike, you name them, running on this machine, just go dormant. I know I'm not gonna work, let me try something else. And so they're adding a lot of things in there because they know how good, you know, certain products are definitely able to find things. So the dumb bad guys get caught because they don't have this type of sophistication then you get the smarter bad guys that say, All right, I'm really trying to do something here. I'm not going to get caught the easy way. I'm going to go around this other side. And that's where analytics helps you, is trying to figure out, OK, they, you've never seen anybody do what this guy's doing. Maybe that's a security problem. Now let's go investigate it.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I think anomalous traffic where a <coughs> machine is sending secure shell outbound to the internet. It's never done it, none of the machines ever do it. That's something that is important. When we're running cyber operations, when in the SOC, we don't wanna say, hey, that alert I think means X. It would be greater to have a context of these machines are doing this, this is weird. And to us, that's something, so let's take a look at that. Why are they going out to secure show? Why do we have RDP traffic coming from machines that right. are Linux, uh, for instance? So there's a lot of these questions and anomalies that I think helps, A, discover your assets better, what technology is set up, where You may discover some old things that are there that you never knew about, uh, but it also, I think, gives inside to, I think, Dr. Neil, on my first podcast, he was talking about just the ability of saying what's new or different. Yeah. And, but humans are weird. And so are kind of computers and software they're written and it can display new and it's weird, right. but it's not malicious. Right. It's Absolutely. just weird. So, how do you determine the difference between weird and malicious?
3: Yeah, I think that's probably one of the bigger challenges in the traditional anomaly detection type things. So, if you were to go back five, ten years ago, anomaly detection was really more labeled like behavioral, right? So, user behavioral, network behavioral, things like that. And the big challenge with those products, you had to start with a baseline, so you could baseline bad behavior, right? And so you would end up with, I'm going to build a baseline, but weird is already in there, so I'm not going to, it's not going to look weird going forward. So that was the challenge that we had in the analytics space a few years back. Now with some of the technology that we brought to bear and some of the other things from, I know AI machine learning has been way overused, right? In the over-hyped, past. Few, yeah. Overhyped.
1: and. My favorite saying is artificial intelligence is no match for natural stupidity. Yeah, I yeah. like
3: that, yeah. But I think at the end of the day, there are ways to use machine learning all in data analytics that help you understand things that you didn't know to look for. And that's where we spent a good bit of our time is I'm not, I'll sit there and say, yes, we have ML and AI in our platform, but it's not like what we're doing, what a lot of people are doing, which is I'm just gonna grab a model, and I'm gonna punch, I'll throw some data through it, and let's see what I get. Mm-hmm. It's more to understand the data and model the data based on what's coming in, not try to, in the machine learning world, it's called feature selection, not try to you know actually tell the data what to look for, just get out of the way and let it find it and that is where we find a lot of the the attacks that just were not you couldn't find in some other way right because no analyst no human is going to know to put peel back those seven layers right. of the onion to find out that onion smells bad right you have to let something else do it then present it to the analyst because i don't think there's any way that you can automate it because like you said there are weird things going on all the time which weird am i worried about from a security perspective is the challenge that we have here, but to find out? Yeah, we're getting all the weird. Which out of those hundred weird, which three am I worried focus about? On, yeah. And that's a challenge. In any in any security product, definitely.
1: Like we had one security incident with one of our customers. I think you remember them, where they were having failed log on attempts from an internet based yep. system, and right. they were saying, "I want to see an alert when I had so many X fail we- failures." Sure. What we're trying to say is that there's a lot of noise coming from the internet. You're going to see failed logon attempts. And then to be alerted that the control works uh, may not be the best for the SOC's time. And if it is, it's a lower level. It's a sub 4 versus it's more informational uh, than anything. And it can help you put a bigger picture about what's going on. But I do see customers, too, that have this, I don't know, this bad expectation. Like they say, I'm going to take all the port scan data that hits the outside of the firewall. And I'm going to query that against IOCs so I can see what threat actor is looking at us. Right. And I was like, that's completely unrealistic. Yeah. And to be able to get to attribution where we can say, yes, this bad guy who's known by the mob of this background is at this place and he's the one that's port scanning you. Right. That's the movies.
3: It absolutely is. And I think at the end of the day, you're talking about indicators. The fact that this guy's on a bad guy list, the bad guys know about that list too, right? They're not good. They may attack you for fingerprinting stuff from that IP address because they know you're never gonna do anything about it. But when I actually come back to attack you, I'm not coming from that IP address. I'm coming from someplace else. So it's not. It's never gonna line up the way it's, it sounds very easy and very nice to make the Rubik's Cube go that way. Yeah. But it just, it's a lot more complicated. Than just. don't
1: you see on CSI oh, where they yeah, go, hold right. on, I'm hacking into the CIA database. Give me five seconds. Yeah. And by the time they touch five keys, all the data is there and they already read it. And so they already knew the context yeah. of it. And again, oh, yeah, he's got an apartment over here. And you're telling your friends, that is bull crap. That does not happen.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's obviously, it's, it's never as easy as you saw on the screen, right? And that, that's the challenge, right? And that's really why the data analytics side of what we're doing here at Deep Seas makes us so differentiated, right? It's not, we're not a one trick pony. We have multiple things that are looking for things in different ways. And yeah. that's the exciting thing about, can't wait to keep this journey going, shall we say.
1: Yeah, what I like about it is just the way we go about solving problems just in the industry here. We look at what are cybersecurity problems that we could solve right now and take it to the bad guy. I've never once sat down and say, okay, so how can we increase revenue on this product line and how can we get another product? It's never been sales related. It's always been delivery of outcomes and benefits, right? Mm -hmm. It's how do we get quicker, better, faster? And I think, all the business, all that other kind of stuff comes with it. Customers come with it when they see you're focused on their best interest. So you're like an attorney. You're fighting for their best interest every day. Yep. It's been interesting. It's been challenging. What do you think is 2022? What were some of the lessons you learned that when we look back? That's a couple other guests too. Sure. That they looked at 2022. We had a couple different things. You had like solar winds. We had Log4J. We had a number of different kind of celebrity vulnerabilities. But sure what were your thoughts as we look over 2022 you're bringing back some night words for those two
3: right those were big boy problems in, in the space log4j especially solar winds was an extremely sophisticated attack and the, that that's really where i would say 2023 is. your log4j was oh my goodness we found something that's basically everywhere right yeah. and it was really hard to clean up and it, it's still not cleaned up right we still yeah. see those activities today but they're fairly straightforward the problem is it's application specific type things and how long does it take a dev team to go fix it in a lot of cases, that's It's either legacy systems or something else, right? And so that's something we have to deal with from a security perspective and help our customers with. But I think more things like SolarWinds and some of the other attacks that are much more sophisticated are things that I'm seeing a lot more of nowadays. You know, the example I gave of trying to hide if whatever was there was one of the things SolarWinds did. They had a whole block of, um, you know, close to a thousand vendors that if any of these guys are here, just go dormant. And they also did things like have a conversation, then wait seven days because now I'm gonna be part of the baseline image. So if they redo the image, I'm still there. A lot of things like that where you would see much more patience out of these more sophisticated attackers. And not just because they, their dwell time could be very long. It's because they knew <clears throat> the, what kind of targets were being are being monitored. And they could be patient enough to get around those. Mm. Wait, waiting 30 days because that activity doesn't look weird anymore. And now I'm starting to make more and more connections outbound. Those are the types of attacks that I think were interesting into this past year that really show that the attackers are, they're reacting to the fact that we've got some pretty good tool sets that, we're, that we can deal with right now. And they do a really good job, like I said before, the dumb bad guys, but there's way too much money behind this for them to not sit there and try and figure out how to get around some of this stuff. And that—that's—that those are the ones that were really interesting for me. As you, you broke into the code and saw what they're trying to do, they're really... They're more patient and they're they're really expanding their capabilities. Our ability to pivot and find things that we didn't see are really aligned with, okay, this guy's doing something he's never done before. He's now owned. And that's rather than depending on a particular vendor to tell me everything, you've got to have both sides of the fence to to really get even close to being covered nowadays.
1: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then attackers use like a long time period for grinding against passwords, so they don't lock out passwords, so they'll try sure. many failed logon attempts and they know it'll reset after 30 minutes. And so knowing just the timing dimension of some of these security controls and just being able to fly into the radar for some of these models, yep. like they don't see the activity for a time period. We saw one of our big pharmaceuticals who we were doing obfuscated PowerShell attachments and it was obfuscated with base 64 to the third degree. And so they had three levels of base 64 down with the malicious PowerShell script at the end of that. When we saw that was happening, that was occurring, we noticed that all of our tool sets pretty much were blind from that. And they didn't see that level of obfuscation. And I think that's what happens with some of these tool sets. How do they see encoded or obfuscated attacks? And how do they put that together when you have multiple layers of encoding and application standards you're working through? Yeah. Um, in, in many cases, just like they used to have some HTTP attacks where they just put a a command in between the H and the T and the P, and there was no essentially uh, any filtering on it. But I
3: think you mentioned the encoding type thing. That's another area that we're. I saw one attack in particular. I don't remember off the top of my head, but basically, there are products out there that are looking for encoding, even triple encoding, like what you talked about. Base sixty four is easy to see, and then just re encrypting your password multiple times. The more you encrypt it, the easier it is to break. Mm-hmm. You know reverse cryptography type thing, but we saw one particular attack where rather than use the really popular of the base 64 or any of the other ones, they went back to one that was ridiculously old, that didn't really obfuscate very well, but Mm. it wasn't something that anybody was looking for. And so doing things like that, or what I'm saying is you're seeing things where they're just really, they're not pulling something sophisticated out of a book they're pulling something that we're not looking for out of the book. And I think that's the biggest interesting change that, that we've seen in some of these attacks. Yeah, obviously, they want to use the quickest way forward. But a lot of these people, they've got enough money, enough backing that they can be patient and find, okay, that didn't work. Let me try this. That didn't work. Let me try yeah. this. And tend really get their way in. And it's that's the challenge we have. We may find three or four things that they did, but they might have dropped one other thing on there that we didn't know to look for.
1: Yeah, I think Aaron just said this in a later episode on one of the The threat intelligence report, he said that attackers were writing malware in Go language because it was an archaic language not many people programmed in it. So it was really hard for sandboxes to reverse something they've never seen, and nor did they write any kind of parser for.
3: Yeah, it goes getting a lot more popular, but you're right, it's not something that you see a lot of more enterprise applications, that's type thing in right now.
1: You notice too, there's a move to, you have EDR and you have the logging aspect of it, but you have NDR too as well, like the yep. J- Log4J didn't show up on EDR, it shows up on yeah, and we yep. and we had it in our sensors, within the first 3 hours that log4j was there we had signatures and we could see log4j scanning and exploitation but if you go to the approach I'm just going to use EDR and desktops I'm not going to do a sensor anymore for network traffic so you lose all the capabilities of grabbing of us being able to analyze that back to use metadata db for instance is a database system where we collect known bad that we've seen throughout our client environment so it provides a network effect for different things but i I think there's always going to be a combination of an enterprise detection response capability Mm -hmm. on a desktop a logging analysis a logging analysis system for events created in logs and then you're always going to have some network detection and response when you look at the We look at the nation state actors, what are happening, how they're compromising IoT devices and devices that that don't support EDR, some older versions of Linux and so forth. They're printers. Or printers. I tell you, I got. Um, they made fun of me at Whitney Bank when I was the head of security there because I could have sworn the printer, the LaserFit for, Jet 4, was compromised. Yeah. Because it was sending C2 traffic out to some site in China. And they told me it was crazy. That it was part of the maybe the driver update. And, right. And you really couldn't. This was 13 years ago, 14 years ago. So you really couldn't reverse engineering and IR on the printers. It was just very difficult. For the longest time, I just decided to unplug it and just put it in the warehouse. I didn't trust it anymore. Okay. But And come to find out, a couple guys I know that were dealing with intelligence agencies. Right. Yeah, we were all over printers. That's yep. how we routed through everything.
3: So it's interesting how much that is an attack vector that mm-hmm. we're just not looking at. As security professionals, you know, because you can't get EDR in there, that's why they go to stuff like that. Right? just pivot. Right. I may start with an EDR thing, find out, hey, look, I've got CrowdStrike on here. I better be quiet. There's a printer. Let me go get on that. Now I can do whatever I want to. Yeah, That's the type of things that's really- And
1: they rarely update that. That's not in the patch management. Uh-huh. Who's updating the laser printer driver? No, yeah. No. Yeah. And so I think that's all very interesting. I had some of the other incidents that I've had to go through that may be helpful. For instance, Ed, there was an incident I saw by looking on the firewall. I was looking for C2 traffic outbound. We had a proxy server. So I knew all malware is not proxy aware. It's not going to get eighty eighty to the proxy. It may just hit the stack and then goes right. zero's route out to the Internet, hits the firewall. And I could say, huh, something's interesting because I overrode you know, right. its proxy settings. It right. went straight off the stack. or so something's mm-hmm. not right. And I was looking through the logs on what's being denied there, and I see this IP address, this four dot, whatever address space. And I got really good as a network engineer to, I can see the class A address space and know I've seen that before. Okay, that's in America, that's in Asia, because I have to go right, look, look them Google up in Aaron, yeah. and go trace down where's the IP address space at. But I've never seen this one before, nor have I ever seen this IP address coming from the inside interface of my firewall, not right. the outside. But it was some four dot. Now, go look it up, and it was from China. And I didn't understand how is. I have RFC 1918 address space internally. So I had the 10 dots, right 172s, and the 192s. How is it I have Chinese traffic that's outbound from there? It's, that's not supposed to be possible. Right. And what I find out is I trace it back to a router in Sarasota, Florida. And what happened is AT&T accidentally changed BGP routes and routed international traffic through a branch <laughs> router in Sarasota, Florida. God. And it goes through the router and default zeros out to our internet connection. And I happened to see it right. on that time period. When I chased it and I went, logged on to the router that was there, I did show access list. And I'm able to see they've been attacking it for the last week and a half. And that's when this BGP chain happened, about right. a week and a half ago. And so we just put down new access hardening guidelines. So we just said these are your hop points, these are our land ports that we're gonna allow you to do administration, your jump points for, and you're gonna to have to have secure shell and cell telnet, all that kind of hardening stuff you do on the router. Just put that on there. And yes, it was being attacked by the Chinese consistently. Right. Now, I did something human wise and looked through a bunch of packet denies and caught the Chinese right. one. Yep. How do you catch that kind of anomaly? By, by tool sets that says, Hey, you know, this is weird that this is happening. That kind of stuff is where I think we need to be able to get better on hunting, coming up with a plan for enterprise search. So for instance, I was using the analogy is that the SOC is like 911. Everything gets called into the SOC, you know, dog bites you, anything else robbed you. Everything gets called in there. What they have to do is triage that. They're going to figure out, is this a shooting? Is there a public safety problem? Do I need to send fire rescue? Is there right. you know, buildings on fire? What's the problem here? And so I have to figure out that really quickly. If they believe there is an incident, they're going to dispatch. And so that's when an analyst is actually looking at that particular, that actual sure. problem. It's a true positive. That means that there's positive that some something's happening there. But we don't know the extent. So let's just say this determined and gets escalated. It needs to go to the IR team. Right. And that turns to where detectives get sent to the scene. Right. They're detectives. They're trying to figure out what's going on. The 911 service goes back into processing. What's the next threats that come out? Right. Sure. And threat hunting is more of that DEEA task force that sets up with the microphones and has the cameras and they're listening on it because they have a theory they have a hunch that some activity is occurring in this area they don't have enough resources to stack out the entire city but they have a theory that something has happened let's say it's the docks they have a theory that something is happening there and so that's when you would set up and do that kind of threat hunting and i think more organizations are doing that but there is a difference what you tell what's the difference between enterprise search and threat hunting what do you think is the difference
3: yeah in my mind there's two different types of hunting right the enterprise search is really i'm going across my entire all of my data trying to find something that looks weird for example of you know the, the china traffic internally is, is a great mm-hmm. example and then in my mind there's also the idea of threat hunting both as a human doing hunting right going and looking at, I'm just gonna try and find something I haven't seen. That That is one side of it. You have to have a tool set that allows you to do that fast enough. And, and that, that's one of the areas that we target. But I also think the automated threat hunting part of what we're doing is really special. So at the end of the day, to use your example, as data gets loaded in for each customer, there's a different, it's a bunch of math that we don't need to go to here, but basically a mathematical representation of what who you are as a company, right? And as things get sent into there, then you've got your microphones and your DEA type thing going. Things start to pop up, right? I'll use the analogy of the submarine, right? So my submarine experience, you guys have seen on, a, on the movies, the radar screen with little blips on there. Which blip am I supposed to, which blip am I worried about? Is this a just yeah. a out on the ocean or is this the torpedo that's coming right at me? It's really analogous to what we have to do in the security space because there's literally an ocean of data out there and trying to find the blips that you didn't even know were there. So basically what we're doing in the deep seas automated hunting piece is every blip is looked at and blips that are more different than others become these are your most interesting blips and they come up to be looked at by those higher level detectives or whatever you want to call them that understand this really should never be there. And so you bubble up those interesting anomalies and it's not based on anything that you even knew to look at. It's based on understanding the data that's typical in your environment, right? We, You guys never use Secure Shell. What's Why is there a Secure Shell happening in your environment? That's something I might know to look for as a hunter. But the automated hunting says, I'm not looking for these known ports. I'm looking for something that no one's ever even used before. Mm. Hey, look at that. All of a sudden, I've got something. There's a bunch of different examples, right? But if high ports that are never really used. Now, yeah. all of a sudden, there's some traffic going on that. bunch why of
1: ephemeral port traffic and right. you don't know why. Yeah.
3: And I guess the idea of the automated hunting is... We're going to let the system go and just hunt all day long, and just send things up to us that are very that are different, right? Mm-hmm. Then we get the humans involved, and we have a layer that basically says security, not security anomaly, that type of thing. But then beyond that, you now have to have those high-level analysts that could go in and say. Yeah, that really doesn't, that's not right. We've had a number of examples, talked about IoT. We had one bank where the camera that's looking at the vault Mm. suddenly started doing something you had never done before. That basically, there was a driver pushed down from the manufacturer that had been compromised and got sent that particular camera. And then you could actually go on Shodan and pick up the camera and go watch the bank vault if you wanted to. Stuff like that. Those are the things that you never really even knew to look for. But it bubbles up in, in the anomaly detection because, hey, this is something that, you didn't even expect to see. So those are the things I think about when I talk about hunting. I think there's a, as a hunter, you need to have a tool so that you can go and just pull back whatever layers you want to. But then also you want something that can give you things that are interesting that you didn't even know Mm -hmm. to really go hunt for.
1: Yeah, I think some of it's a contextualization, too, as well. What are those assets that they have over there? I remember not too long ago, we were talking to one of our clients, and they had a bunch of RDP traffic. And they said, this looks really weird. And when I saw it, it looked normal because the host name looked like Citrix app servers. And I noticed that the traffic was exactly the same on all six of them. Like, it had a load balance in front of it. And so we were able to say, no, that is the Citrix farm. That's legitimate. Pass that on. I think in many ways, we've got to get better at what is legitimate. Yeah. And then if we can start marking that. out, I had shadow IT in many places. You'd have the IT department would start up some new service, or one of the departments would get some cloud service. Doesn't yeah. tell anybody. You don't need IT to set it up anymore. It's all web-based. Right? Sure, of course. But all of a sudden, you're getting emails in that say they're self-salesforce or there's something else, and the SPF is failing and everything's failing on it. Yet you didn't know it existed in the first place. And so what happens is while you're trying to teach your user community not to click on links, they go, Oh no, except for that one, because we just pushed this out and nobody knows about it. So, right, sure. So I think we defeat our anti phishing services pretty well. But when they talk about machine learning and anomalies, a lot of it is you have to have clean data sets, right? You have to know what is what's happening and what's clean. It can't be really dirty data sets. But I'm really curious, how does that how do we see in every different client environment? Not of all A lot of them don't have clean data sets. Everything's all over the place. And so it's like different layers of capability of maturity that we can help them with to achieve. But there's only some levels that bed in, bed out. Unless we configure how the log sources are coming in and how things are doing, you're never really gonna get any better. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah,
3: the reality is, so what we've done over time, our original (laughs) set of anomaly detection was really based on what the problem you just talked about, right? You had to have clean data, it used those data points, and that's how it found anomalies. What we've evolved to today is you actually have building anomalies off of the original raw packet. So I don't care how you parsed it. It really doesn't matter. I'm looking at the raw data and finding these are the patterns and keywords and things that are always in your environment. Now, it's probably going to be a lot of the same things that you would parse out into fields. Right. But now we can actually do it where I'm looking at Cisco. I'm looking at whatever. And I know these are supposed to be in there. Now I've got another pattern or another keyword or something from the raw event. So I don't have a data quality problem with those anomalies. Now it's harder to do that, obviously, but at the end of the day, if you have a scalable enough infrastructure behind the anomaly detection, you can do that at scale, right? And that's where we're headed. And there are another couple of things beyond that as we continue to look at these security anomalies and that, that those types of detections. Yeah, there are problems like that that you have to figure out how to solve. And the way we solve the, the data problem is we just go off the, the the raw data, so it doesn't. So I don't have a data quality issue with that one
1: anymore yeah that makes sense and i think sometimes getting to the point where that you have a holistic approach to things you're not using one method or the other exactly uh, yes and you don't want to have to rely on just the detection from an analytics tool set versus something that the kind of the vendor has put in like a fire or edr or something to that absolutely
3: i think that's the most important thing as a security you know practitioner and as we're trying to help our clients is there is no silver bullet. I'm here talking about data analytics, and it's my, if I love it, that's my thing. But at the end of the day, data analytics without something like EDR, you're in a world of hurt, right? So you have to have those different, I hate the term defense in depth, but that's the idea, right? Is you mm. have enough coverage to find the things that the things specialize in certain areas.
1: Yeah, you notice too is that there's been this huge rush to cloud and everybody wants to move to cloud and Azure and AWS and I don't think they they think of the benefits of yeah. moving to cloud. Like, I don't have to worry about security anymore.
3: Yeah. It's like Amazon's
1: it. responsibility. And then we find out it's the opposite and they weren't prepared for this, but the security monitoring model is different. Now you have a bunch of serverless connections, you have a bunch of API connections. How do you do normal security? How do you see that serverless connection was malicious? I don't know. How do you get in the middle of that? How do you do intrusion detection systems in totally uh, cloud-based SD-WAN environment?
3: These people like Microsoft have now changed their contracts to where you as a customer are responsible. There's no more of this. It's Microsoft's problem or it's Amazon's problem. It's your problem as a customer. And for us as as a security provider, yeah, taking as much of that data in there and not having to parse it, not having to understand exactly how Amazon does something, but here's something that's different in, in the data, in the anomalies. From a cloud perspective, that's where we're starting to shine because we're not having to build something brand new to support cloud. It's just a different set of patterns and keywords and things that are in the data that is now in your environment that wasn't before. So once it learns, okay, this is what's supposed to be there. Now, if I see something different in my Amazon flow data, it'll pop out just any other anomaly will pop out. That's the interesting thing. I think cloud... It's a lot harder to secure because there are not your typical points where you can affect the security. Choke points. Yeah, choke points and stuff where you can go monitor. So it's harder to do. But I think we're uniquely positioned to to help in that case. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And I think there's a holistic approach that you need to be able to tune in. Security operations centers are definitely morphing now. It used to be the days that the corporations built their own SOC. They just hired their own people. They just did three night shifts and 24 by seven. And you see in that model is totally upended as people realize, and they can't keep up with the talent gap. They can't keep yeah. up with the capabilities. Uh, there's always another tool. One thing I hear from most CISOs, they're so tired of tools for okay. everything. They have got tools for everything. They got the SEM. they got the DLP, they got the IPS, they got all those dif- different tools and none of them really work in concert. And one of the things that we've focused on as I've focused on over the years is that cyber fusion center. It's being to fuse different mm-hmm. capabilities. Like you had a vulnerability management function and you fuse it with an Intel function and then you have what's called attack surface reduction. So it's a threat based analysis of how do you reduce right. your landscape and your hygiene and so forth. That's where we see a lot of people are really impacting the security a lot is because the, they either did or did not focus on hygiene in the beginning or have a program for it. It was more like a scan that would happen every three months or six months, right. somebody would do. But we saw some of the biggest clients in the world, especially on the pharmaceutical side, that reduced their operating risk because they focused in every week. They got the threat intel reports that would come in. They knew what which vulnerabilities were actually being exploited in the wild. We were able to talk to the IT teams and give them guidance and say, no, you don't have to wake everybody up right now to pass this. You got about a week. Right. Because of where it's at in the infrastructure, it's uh-huh. not gonna see the internet for a while, and it's gonna be really difficult for whatever reason that we give. And that was so enlightening to the IT department because before it was just, everything came across as a CVSS score 10, and right. that means just do it. Whatever, they, There was no analysis on the risk posture that it poses sure. and so forth. So I see a lot of more things like that, like for instance, the hybrid model. Where you don't just have managed detection and response capabilities, but you also have one or two resources on the ground or full-time resources assigned to it, whether they're remote or on the ground. Right. But their job is to focus and deliver those services, and then what you're able to do is ensure the outcome. And if you don't like it, you switch. You switch providers. Right. So we see that as being the trend of a lot. Are you trying? Are you seeing some of that as trending as well?
3: Yeah, I think there's to to your point. A lot of the enterprise customers, like if I go back to the last three or four years, in in a, Some of our bigger customers, you'd have a lot of people who were standing up like they were the eight by five sock and we were after the fact and they'd have Splunk in there. And at the end of the day, they kept getting the bill. And so they'd move. They'd only send they stopped sending so many things into the sim, move things over to the data lake. Right. And I think that's where we're seeing a lot more people be thinking nowadays. Amazon just came out with their data lake. I think the idea is get all of your data in one place where you can do analysis on it send the SIM the things that SIM are very good at and let it do its thing. Because mm-hmm. SIM, I'm not sitting here saying SIM's bad. SIM is actually very good at a lot of things. Um, but it doesn't scale, right? So you need something else that is more scalable so you can go in and do analytics outside of what the SIM is specializing in. Yeah. So it's getting to the point where people are understanding that SIM is a tool. It's not the tool. Um, and I think we've seen a lot of that in, in a lot of the enterprise customers. And it's not just a pricing problem. I think that at the end of the day, yeah, it costs a lot for some of these SIMs. But I think it's also more a capability and realizing that I may be able to get 50% of what I need out of that. But now what, how do I do the other 50%?
1: And I think the philosophy I've seen really shift too is at first you saw where it was an attitude of throw everything into the sim and then yeah. let the sim figure it out. Like it would magically take all those data feeds and go, okay, you actually need this set up that way. And we're finding out as what when we try to push back on clients to say that is the wrong philosophy you ought to have. The first philosophy you ought to have <laughs> is this security control tool that that you're gonna implement. What is its use cases that you feel are important? If this goes off, you wanna know this and just pseudo code this in the beginning. Just talk from a high level, what would look bad? What would indicate? And then we figure out that activity in the use case perspective. Then we figure out the data sources and then how to bring it in. If they just say, let's say it's Netscope for instance, we're just gonna bring Netscope in, we just hand you all the data, but we have no real expectations of what the use cases are. Right. Then all the responsibility flows to the suck and the sim, The data volume goes up. The events per second go up. Then the bean counters come to you and go, "How can you reduce this bill? Look how big right. this bill is." Absolutely. It is recent scenario. I've never had this happen before, where. I built SIMS many times before, and what we'd do is it was a capital expenditure. You'd buy the hardware, and the, you'd buy the NAS, and you'd install it, and right. you'd depreciate it over three to five years, whatever your depreciation cycle is, but it's yours. It's a terabyte, two, two terabyte, now this is going back just a couple yeah. of years, <laughs> so that you got a terabyte on a thumb drive nowadays. Yeah. But you owned it. It was, your, it was done. Now in a cloud environment, it's the bill comes in every month. And if I decide to spin up some resources and I don't take it down, that bill just went up. Right. Now accounting is looking at me saying, you need to log less. Really? Yeah. We've been trying to log more. We're yeah. trying to have more visibility. Now you tell me we have to log less because the price is such an impact of what we're trying to do yeah. and, and so forth. So I've never had to justify log sources to accountants before. It was really a strange thing to do. The
3: reality is, as we talked about before, the amount of data is just going to continue to grow. And so that problem is just going to get bigger. And so the idea of finding some capability to scale scale your data consumption and something that's not going to make the accountant scream at you, yeah. I think it's, it's something that, that as security professionals I mean, we kind of all have to do right and so yeah i guess to that point putting getting as much data as you can into the right spot is really one of the most important things we can do to help our customers as we get in there we start learning their environment yeah there's always going to be these hey did you know this was going on whether it's shadow it or whatever else yeah out of out of the gate that's absolutely our what we want to do and how we can help our customers as soon as we get in there and then getting to understand it and getting more information and continuing to understand that and do it at scale without having to You go to the customer and say, "Okay, now you always now your check is bigger. Now your check is bigger." Is something that all anyone you talk to out there they're concerned about that type of pricing and what it's doing to them.
1: Yeah, so I see them initiating these tracys or this technology rationalization projects essentially, where it's okay. I got four different EDR tools I need to be able to standardize on one, or I have this the multiple types of antiviral products that, that we're putting on host systems. Which one should we use? Which one's effective? Which one should we deprecate? There is a lot of wasted money in toolset. Of course there right is. Yeah. And it takes more time. You have some SME that he was part of it that it helped implement it, and then all of a sudden he goes away and nobody knows how it's set up That's- and how it's running. And so I call it security anthropology. Yeah. I've been on so many projects that I would come in and I would see something was built three years ago, but have no idea what it was. And no one does. what was the culture there yeah. that did that? It was really, really strange because you're trying to figure out what the requirements are, what did they build? And it's just like seeing some old civilization there, yeah. trying to figure it out.
3: I think that you hit on one of the other problems we've got right now gap in just people to fill the roles and then people moving on. So you end yeah. up with tool sets that, like you said, I like the term security anthropology. It's This was carved in stone by somebody just a few years ago, but now nobody ha- knows how to read what they put on stone. It happens all over the place. And so tools just, I, a lot of the CISOs and people we talk to are, yeah, I can't wait for that that license to expire so I can get rid of that one. I'm going to bring in my new one. And it just it's just a continuous cycle of you know, whatever vendor gets your ear. They'll tell you they can do anything in the world, but reality is you can only do a certain piece. And I think the idea of what are the use cases that that this particular tool set is very good at, go tune it, make sure that one is just screaming on those, and then go find something else that you need, the holes that you need, don't try and get this guy to do that that as well, because that's where you really get in trouble as practitioners trying to put the proverbial square in in the round hole type thing where a tool set is just not made to do that. You know, if you have a chance to impact the roadmap and they can do it for you, sure, but that's not, in most cases, these vendors are so big that you don't have that capability.
1: Yeah, makes sense. And I think when you look at some of the EDR products, some of them, like CrowdStrike has their own analytics. You can't really tell what's in there. You can't push customization. I know we use Carbon Black a lot too as well. We use six or seven, we support six or seven different EDR products, but Carbon Black allows us to create a really rich library of analytics and we host that. And so when we deploy into a customer environment, it's not the out of the box baseline config that you get. And too many people feel that it's commoditized. You're just the guy that's here that's laying down some product that's already been developed somewhere and they don't realize, no, we have all this intelligence coming back from being Booz Allen and working for the government and all the top secret stuff we've done over the years, all that kind of intellectual property comes into what we're doing now and how we're delivering. And that's not just buying a product. Like we had, one customer go, you manage an enterprise detection response for us, but I could get the vendor like CrowdStrike or someone to do it themselves. And I think what they'd lose is the context is the vendor may be able to do those services in some cases themselves, but does not create the annex little analytical library and the other tool sets that they pivot to from SEM to EDR to NIDS that we have and the intelligence that comes with it. So it's sometimes comparing apples and oranges.
3: Yeah, no, it's interesting. You like the. The, a government not to be named, you spend some time on Google, you'll figure it out. But at the end of the day, any government institution that gets hit with ransomware, they have to go buy CrowdStrike. It's just mandated. Okay, sure, so you have to have CrowdStrike now. Okay, that is that. That is one tool set to potentially help you. It's good to the, be CrowdStrike. Exactly. Obviously, they got in the right place. Yeah. But I guess the mindset is how do you get people out of that? Is It's not necessarily a, a tool is not the answer. A tool is a one of the bullets in the gun. How do you find the right ones that you need for your organization? Because it's never... The same for company A, company B, and company C. It's always different. And coming in and helping figure that out is being a consultative security partner is what we have to do. It's not just a one size fits all, you know, cookie co- cookie cutter customers coming through and just plug in the tool and you're done. It's just not reality in, in the yeah. security space.
1: I think what's exciting for us is that we're just pure play cyber. We're not IT too. We don't try yeah. to do everything else. So it's really, nice to be able to focus on delivering that particular area and getting better at it every day. And how do you get stronger and how do you put that onto our ability to, for instance, orchestrate? We have the managed detection response, little r, and the managed detection response, big r. So the little r is that We have alerts that come in from tool sets, we correlate them, we infuse our intelligence, we respond back that they're a true positive, and we tell our customer, yes, it's a true positive, you wanna do something about it. The big R comes in where we actually do response. So we have orchestration where we can orchestrate and actually quarantine that host, knock them off, especially if we suspect it's ransomware or some other strain that we're very concerned on. We have the ability to proactively do that. And then also using SOAR, able to orchestrate, let's say it's a proxy block in BlueCode. We need to be able to orchestrate a block using an IP address. just so an example. But we want to be able to empower the analyst to, A, when they're doing security analysis, they have all the tools that they need to pivot. Mm-hmm. To jump between tools, you don't have to paste and copy. They're able to do their analysis within an environment without having too much going back and forth. You want to be able right. to make a decision quickly and effectively. And also when a proactive response has to occur, it's... Uh, some of these organizations, you're going to put a ticket in, you got to call them. It's, it, yeah. it, You can't orchestrate anything. Only thing you can orchestrate is a ticket. Right. You can't actually write to the blue coat box and block it and so forth. So I think companies are going to get a little bit more open, is my prediction, in 2023 of allowing greater orchestration on things. We still want tickets in order to be able to see what's going on. But at the same time, there's too many of these managers that the ticket flow is somehow indicative of how effective... Security right. team is right. Look how many tickets they close. It's right. just a horrible dimension. Yeah, especially when you're a security guy. Is that I hate tickets. I want to deal with tickets constantly. It's not a few, a true reflection of my work for that, what you've right? been doing.
3: Yeah, and I agree with you. I think the idea of customers opening up doing orchestration five years ago, the majority of the people would say, "No, I don't want you to do anything automatic." You know, just you got to call me, wake me up at two o'clock in the morning. I'm fine with that. Yeah. And nowadays, it's much more. All right, as long as it's within these boundaries, you can take care of it and then I'll start dealing with it in the morning because they're tired of all of these. Exactly. Not necessarily false positives, but ones that they really don't have to get waken, woken up for. Okay, those can work. Those can go for tomorrow. You guys take care of it. Then we'll come in and deal with it. It's a much better, much healthier way of life for the for the customer. It's perspective. a peace of mind. I think yeah. they
1: want to be able to spend the nights and weekends with their family and not up because their provider didn't respond properly to yeah. something. And so forth, man. I thought it was a great time talking to you today, and, and understand it, yeah. what we're seeing in the future, and or we saw in 2022 some kind of predictions on 2023. I think you um, and I were talking about earlier about quantum computing. We oh, think that's gonna, give me going to that's going to change some special in the encryption side of this. Encryption almost it seems like it may be out the window with doing things at the quantum level. So it seems like that's going to be interesting. The Chat GPT, it was telling you how really interesting. I used, I needed to create a blog for the show and how i was able to transcribe it with one package of software then i routed through Ch- chat gpt and asked it to create a blog based on the transcript of the show and it did it within two three words that had to change that that, that yep. seemed syntactically different but it did it, and I was shocked on it. So I really think it's gonna impact a lot of marketing or letter writing related sure. fields and so forth. But in security, I definitely see it's gonna be doing some it, interesting it's things.
3: It's a good example of what we were talking about where machine learning and AI, there are certain things now that are actually starting to do a good job with it. It's not just hype. And so I think that's the main, that's a great example of that type of conversation is, yes, it's gonna it's going to continue to get better and become more a part of our, yeah.
1: our lives. I'm just afraid when it's interviewing me and I <laughs> report to an AI bot, Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm being interviewed by it and we got to get past the bot stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. I have a sort of problem like that. What went my wife? I want a Alexa in, in my house. Right. Okay. And the reason why is that can you imagine I'm arguing with my wife and then Alexa pops up and goes, boom. No, Joshua. Actually, actually you, you did, did say that. <laughs> and she has a photographic memory. Yeah. Right. So now I'm dealing with a real wife and a yeah. virtual one and yep. I'm going to lose Twice as bad. I'm going to drop so. the challenge flag on you and so say, let's go rewind that for a bit. Yep, absolutely. Thanks for joining us, Joel. Course, I bet. appreciate you being here. Thanks for everybody joining in and listening in to us discuss data analytics and what we saw in 2022 and what you can see in the future. And look to join in on our next episode. And please do me a favor. Do the subscribe. They'll tell people about it. Be able to post it on LinkedIn as we continue to drive membership. And I thank y'all. And I look forward to talking to everybody soon. And stay secure.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure.